Thanks for choosing a 3CR podcast. Throughout June 2023, we're running our annual Radiothon, where we ask you, the listener, to make a donation so that we can continue to make great radio. Your donation will help keep us community-owned and community-controlled. Go to 3cr.org.au slash donate. And with that done, please enjoy the podcast. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning everybody, Annie here for Solidarity Breakfast on 3CR, your community radio station. And uh, we're going to go... Uh, go back in time to last Friday when uh, the Antiochus uh, project uh, uh, had a forum at the um, Victorian Trades Hall. Uh, You may not have been able to get there, but uh, there were some uh, pretty interesting speakers. We're going to feature a couple because uh, the mainline act was Peter Garrett. Now, of course, he's uh, ex-Midnight Oil, which, of course, during the 80s, were uh, very uh, vocal about being anti-nuclear. And um, so it's interesting to hear his take because in a later reincarnation, he, of course, was uh, a minister in one of the Labor governments. So uh, uh, it'll be interesting to hear what he has to say. Uh, And Margie Beavis, she's uh, from the uh, Doctors Against Nuclear. She's also from ICANN, and she gives a fairly interesting uh, roundup of uh, the pros and cons of AUKUS, uh, and uh, the weight seems to be very heavily on the... Uh, negative, I'd have to say. A very interesting uh, and well-attended uh, forum at the uh, Solidarity Hall at uh, Victoria Trades Hall on Friday the 23rd. We're going to follow that up with uh, a chat with Sue McKinnon. She's from King Late Friends of the Forest. There's been a uh, a legal win. Uh, you'll be aware that uh, a number of the environment groups have taken the tactic of uh, the law. They've decided they decided to take uh, the Vic Forests to court, and uh, they won a um, in court. Uh, but uh, then Vic Forests uh, made an appeal, and uh, just. Twenty uh, seventh of uh, June, uh, the uh, Supreme Court, Victoria's Supreme Court, came back uh, re-emphasising that uh, Vic Forest was in the wrong, and this is really important. So we're going to have a chat with uh, Sue about why it's important and uh, what the tactic was and uh, what it means for our forests. Uh, we're going to finish up the show with a chat, hopefully, with Connor Flynn from Save the Preston Market. Connor's actually going to come in. We're going to have a live guest. Very exciting. Um, Co- Co- Connor is... Uh, um, I met Connor during the uh, Stop the uh, 
East West Tunnel. And um, so uh, he's a long term activist around uh, inner city and city developments. And uh, of course, uh, Save the Preston Market is a really important local issue. Uh, and uh, he's going to talk to us about what their next strategies are because uh, it seems that uh, it's all very dangerously close to the uh, private developer getting their way. So we'll see what he says and we'll find out more about that. But before we do, I have to thank people for putting money into the pot for Radiothon uh, for the breakfast shows. We've reached our target, but overall 3CR hasn't reached its target, but we're over $200,000 in our big effort to get to $275,000. So that is actually quite remarkable, but we've still got a bit of a way to go. So keep your eyes and ears out for some of the uh, fundraisers that we're going to be doing to uh, make sure that we reach our target. Uh, And also remember this important reason for why, it's a proof of why 3CR is such an important uh, radio station. Hi, I'm Robbie Thorpe. Beyond the Bars is 3CR's annual prison radio series where we share the mic with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander men and women in Victoria's prisons. Uh, We are such a huge representation in prison all over Australia. Statistically, it has to stop and it's not going to stop while you're building more beds in a prison. It's a band-aid. What about beds outside? Tune in to 3CR during NAIDOC week at 11am each day from Monday the 3rd to Friday the 7th of July. We'll take you inside six Victorian prisons. Dame Phyllis Frost Centre, Barwon Prison, Fulham Correctional Centre, Loddon Prison, Marguerite Correctional Centre and Port Phillip Prison. To hear stories, songs, opinions and poems from the men and women inside while connecting with culture and community. The shows will be live on 3CR 855 on your AM dial. 3CR Digital and streaming via our website or the Community Radio Plus app. For more information, head to our website, 3cr.org.au backslash beyond the bars. You're with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast on 3CR and uh, on last Friday, oh not no, not the Friday just ha- we've just had, but uh, the Friday before, the 23rd of June, there was a No AUKUS Coalition Victoria Forum and uh, it was held at the Solidarity Hall at the Victoria Trades Hall. The speakers included Peter Garrett, uh, Arthur Roris, Secretary of the New South Wales South Coast Trades and Labor Council, and uh, Tony... Maverin Martis, Victorian State Secretary of the Australian Manufacturing Workers Union, both of them talked very uh, compellingly about how there are no jobs and uh, in AUKUS and uh, what it will trample all over in terms of workers' rights. But uh, you can catch up with some of what they say on the next Stick Together program because it's absolutely riveting information about uh, uh, what workers can really expect 
and uh, how it's oppositional to the progress uh, for better jobs for workers in Australia. But anyway, today we're going to hear from Peter Garrett. We're going to hear from Dr. Margie Beavis. She's an OAM. She became an OAM in the last honours list. Uh, Vice President of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War and Australian Co-Chair of the International Campaign for the Abolition of Nuclear Weapons, ICANN. So first up, we'll hear what uh, Peter Garrett had to say, because uh, it's always interesting to hear from a man who was uh, uh, flagrantly uh, activist and then became a uh, doyon of a a Labor government and now... um, he has got something to say that uh, doesn't actually support the uh, policies that are at hand at the moment in a Labor government. Uh, AUKUS stinks. That's uh, the first thing that came into my head when the announcement was made. Uh, I still think it stinks. It's the biggest, it's the most costly and it's the riskiest decision ever taken by any Australian government short of governments committing us to war and it should not be allowed to stand. So it's a great pleasure to join you um, at this important forum in Melbourne uh, to acknowledge the great activism that's emanated not only from this building, from the Labor movement, but from the community in general because it is very, very important that more and more people become aware of the substance of the decision. Uh, To be clear about many aspects of it, which uh, my other fraternal colleagues on the stage will no doubt uh, explain, under AUKUS, Australia will be the only non-nuclear nation that is actually in possession of nuclear submarines. There are many other aspects of AUKUS which are abhorrent and objectionable and the opposition to it isn't confined uh, to one member of the Labor Party, a former uh, member of the government or a cabinet minister. Former Labor Prime Minister Keating um, strenuously opposes AUKUS, as does former Foreign Minister Carr, also the former Premier of New South Wales. Former Prime Minister of the Coalition, Malcolm Turnbull, opposes AUKUS. The calls for a thorough parliamentary inquiry uh, into that decision, which should take place, were supported by myself, by uh, Arthur Rorris, who's here with us today, by former WA Premier and Federal Parliamentarian Carmen Lawrence, from Doug Cameron, from Senators... David Shoebridge and Penny Orman-Payne, from the former Chief of the Air Force, Air Marshal Ray Fennell, from Major General Michael Smith, the former Deputy Commander of the UN Peacekeeping Operations in Timor, a slew of academics, foreign policy and defence experts, including Hugh White, who many of you will hear on ABC Radio, have raised objections to AUKUS, so we are not alone. The basic and major objection to AUKUS lies in the aspects of the arrangement which see us reversing our foreign policy and defence posture 
that's been generally in place since World War II. We're going from a focus of direct defence, as is currently constituted, to a concentration on forward defence. Uh, in the words of the submission for the inquiry and the statement made, forward defence, in brackets, attack against a specific adversary where the grounds for identifying that adversary are unclear and unsupported. Additionally, that statement noted that Australia does not have the necessary design or manufacturing skills to operate nuclear-powered submarines, and defence has the worst record of delivery on any matter of material acquisition as can be imagined. So the thought that even if it were to go ahead, it could be done in time and at cost is fanciful. Additionally, AUKUS brings with it the challenge of managing weapons-grade radioactive waste, for which there is no plan, I repeat, zero plan for safe management. And so it goes on. Now, I'd like to think that the current members of the federal parliament, Labor members in the caucus and in the cabinet, would be mindful of these glaring deficiencies. And it's hard to believe that they were fully informed or had the opportunity to thoroughly consider the ramifications of such a momentous decision. What papers were presented to caucus members and to Cabinet? Which independent expert analysis was provided? What detailed plans as to how AUKUS would be executed or the rationale for undertaking that foreign policy reverse U-turn provided at all? I suspect the answer is very little, but we don't know, and we should know. And of course, tragically, we've been here before. The British nuclear tests at Maralinga and the Montebello Islands spelled out quite eloquently to the First Peoples where the priorities of the national government of the day lay. And modern Australia, uh, as I define it, has an insecure backstory of following major imperial partners into ill-judged and, in the case of Iraq, illegal wars. And that backstory is still very much with us. Vietnam, Iraq, Afghanistan. And whilst defence planners and the political consensus that we needed the protection of a major strategic partner did make some sense, the unquestioning acquiescence to that strategic partner's own foreign policy intentions and the lurch to war that that has entailed in the past, post-1945, has been nothing short of pathetic and against our national interest. Now, I would argue, unlike some of you in this room, 
that we should have a robust and mutually supportive relationship with the United States. Notwithstanding its many apparent flaws, yes, its values in some ways are closer than many others to ours, but at the same time, allies in consideration of the literal defence of a continent such as Australia and the relationship with those allies is a matter of great national importance. Yet, the rise of China, the stronger economic and political clout of neighbours in the region, and the continuing US failures in foreign policy adventurism, instead of recalibrating our defence policy to take into account factors like those, we've simply completely and absolutely thrown our lot in, unquestioningly, it seems, with the United States. Howard famously encouraged President Bush into the illegal war in Iraq and was so named deputy sheriff, to which the response was, hey, we're no deputy, we're a real sheriff. Morrison was that guy that President Biden couldn't remember the name of. And now, regrettably, Prime Minister Albanese has signed on to AUKUS. Remember, the initial AUKUS agreement was conceived in secret. Morrison betrayed his own colleagues and then he betrayed the French government. And yet it was rapidly acquiesced to by a new Labor government. To think that you can design and build something as complex and potentially lethal as a nuclear-powered attack submarine in the 21st century in three countries over a period of decades at a cost in well excess of $368 billion is fanciful. It's a three-ring circus and it should be opposed by all Australians who think carefully and care a lot about our national interest. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 8.55am, on digital and online, 3CR Radical Radio. And you're with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast. We were just listening to Peter Garrett, who was one of the uh, speakers at the No AUKUS uh, forum, which was on on 23rd of June at uh, Victoria Trades Hall. We're now going to move on to Margie Beavis, uh, Dr. Margie Beavis, OAM, Vice President of the Medical Association for Prevention of War and Australian Co-Chair of the International Campaign for the Abolition of Nuclear Weapons. I can't. There are so many things wrong with this deal on so many levels, it's very difficult to know where to start. These submarines clearly do not pass the pub test. As a GP, when you're analysing things, you actually, if you've got a new drug on the market, it has to go through a whole set of tests. You have to think about the choices you're making. What is the cost-benefit of what you're doing? So, what is the cost-effectiveness of these submarines? Um, If these submarines went before a drug committee, they would be laughed out of the room. Why are we doing this? What are we trying to fix? Are they going to be effective for what we're trying to fix? What are they going to cost? What are the side effects? 
what other treatments are there that would be just as good or better for making Australians more secure? Why are they the best option? There's no attempt being in the parliament or with the public to explain why we need these submarines. There's all this, China's getting more powerful, and if, if you knew what I knew, you'd agree with us. But there's been no debate. Even the foreign minister was left out of this decision. This was Morrison's secret deal, and it was a fabulous media opportunity, but that's about it. Um, is it going to make us secure? Remains to be seen. Very unlikely. Is it going to create jobs? If it does create jobs, I want one. At $18 million a job, fantastic. Is it going to strengthen our alliance with the UK and the US? Well, perhaps because we're going to be putting so much money towards their shipbuilding yards. Will they be effective? If they're medication, they'd have to be. These have very limited function. These are long-range, hunter-killer submarines designed to work in the South China Sea. These are reducing our ability to defend ourselves. They will not work well in the shallow northern waters of Australia. There are a very small number of subs. Hard to know if they'll make any difference anyway. It's very difficult to man submarines, and usually at least half of them are out of action at any one point. There was an excellent article in The Conversation saying that there's a 75% likelihood that these subs will be obsolete by 2050. Given the first of these subs is likely to come, in, come on board at about 2040, and I think the production line is supposed to keep going till 2065, this makes a nonsense of this in terms of planning. And defence needs for Australia, and defending Australia is important, is talking about things like underwater drones and smart landmines, and they're already in development now, way before these submarines are going ahead. The monetary cost, $368 billion. What defence project hasn't blown out? And this is such an extraordinary amount of money. It's so hard to conceptualise. If we wanted to defend Australia, we could get many more ready-made, off-the-shelf submarines and still have a lot of money that was available to provide for so many other crucial needs. And I'm a bit sceptical as to whether they'll actually ever eventuate. Given the defence... If you look at the Auditor-General's review of defence expenditure that came out earlier this year... My money's on that we'll spend billions and billions and then they'll be cancelled. As a GP, I'm really interested in side effects. These can be di divided into international, national, local. So internationally, these are a huge nuclear proliferation risk. These submarines drive a truck through a loophole in the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. Each submarine has between, I think it's 8 and 20 bombs worth of highly enriched uranium. This is on a stealth weapon, so these subs can disappear for six months. So to pretend that they can be safeguarded is a nonsense. Australia has to sign the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons to demonstrate that we are not, in fact, in the longer run, thinking about acquiring nuclear weapons. South Korea, Japan and Iran are now, after Australia's example, expressing keen interest in acquiring their own nuclear submarines which is no surprise because it would enable them to acquire highly enriched weapons-grade uranium. It's damaged relationships in our region, including with Malaysia and Indonesia. It risks, given the huge expenditure, starting a regional arms race, which would be a tragedy for so many countries. So now I'm going to move on the national side effects. It's a major loss of sovereignty. We cannot operate these submarines without the UK and the US being involved. It will bleed the defence budget and so many other budgets white. It means the defence uh, may well not be getting the right things to defend Australia. This is such a ridiculously expensive undertaking. 
it locks us in. It enmeshes us so closely with an alliance that's taken us into too many wars. Vietnam, over three million Vietnamese people died in that war. For what? And there were millions of refugees. In Iraq, not many Australians died, but between 600,000 and 1.6 million Iraqis did die. And again, millions of uh, people became refugees. And again, the region was destabilised, just as happened in Vietnam. In Afghanistan, it's, you wonder what that was all for. Other reasons why these subs may never happen is, in fact, they've got to get through US Congress yet, and that's far from a done deal. And also, the US and UK submarine programs are both well behind budget, well behind time, and well over budget. Another national side effect is the push for nuclear power. The enthusiasts have come out of the woodwork. Nuclear power is much more expensive than renewables and very slow and highly unsuited to Australia. But with a few billion subsidies, which sometimes defence tends to throw around, who knows, it might be a goer. These subs will give us so much more nuclear waste. We will be left with not only the nuclear waste from the submarines we design and build, but also from the ones we get from America. Nuclear subs are a major problem in terms of waste. This waste is likely to end up again on indigenous lands. This is They tend to put in remote places. Richard Miles may talk about it being defence land. It's still indigenous land. It also will probably, probably, quite possibly, reopen the whole argument about Australia becoming a dumping ground for the world's waste. This has happened before and it's likely to happen again. Have a look at this slide. This is 12 of the 21 retired nuclear submarines in England. This is how England the UK is dealing with its nuclear waste. It's just docked them. They're sitting there. Half of them have had the fuel taken out, half of them have not. They've all still got their reactors in there and they're just quietly rusting away. They pull them out of the dock every 15 years to check they're okay and then pop them back in again. Nuclear waste is not a solved problem and it has to be kept isolated from humans for about 100,000 years. So we need to think long and hard about the liability we're taking on with these subs. Another thing on side effects is the local side effects. The local side effects that shocked me is that despite our promises of gold standard, gold standard IAEA safeguards, surprise, surprise, the regulator for safety for these submarines is going to be the defence minister instead of the independent Australian regulator. This is a disgrace. And the reason I'm so concerned about this is the example that the UK has set. For the last six years, since 2017, the UK has refused to release any information whatsoever about accidents on their subs. Legal appeals, freedom of information, all failed. Um, and then a question in Parliament re re revealed that there was 406 episodes accidents on these subs in just in two years, and three of those involved radiation release. So there is no accountability where there is no transparency. And accountability to the minister the Defence Minister, is not good enough. So what would I spend this money on? If we got, say, 20 or 30 off-the-shelf subs, we'd leave, you know, 40, 40 billion. We might have another 300 billion odd to spend on Australians. Who'd have thought? So what would I spend it on? Just imagine um, 18 months of 300 public servants working on climate change, a good, long-term, strategically thought plan for Australians to deal with climate change. Imagine better health care. Imagine addressing poverty and bringing people on new start onto a reasonable living. Access to housing, closing the gap, services for people with domestic violence threats, legal aid and so much more. The third 
um, casualty. So the third thing that we should be focusing on to make Australians more secure is diplomacy. The current budget for diplomacy is less than one-tenth of the budget for our defence. We need an independent foreign policy that, think about it, acts in Australia's best interest. Again, the AUKUS deal and AUKUS is such a huge thing, it really distorts our ability for diplomacy. And it really means we've got much less focus on what we really need, which is multilateral diplomacy, talking to lots of different countries about what the problems are. And I was asked to touch on the costs, and these are the direct costs, our health system. It was stripped of about 30 billion in the four years leading up to COVID. We have long waiting lists. If you're on a waiting list for a long time, by the time you get to, to get your surgery, you're sicker, you stay in hospital longer, the outcomes are worse. It makes absolutely no sense to have these long waiting lists. They, it, it's more expensive, but we still have them. Medicare, as a GP, I can tell you that Gone are the days when you send someone to a specialist and they'd get bulk billed by a specialist. Long gone. We are heading down the track of an American health system and it's a tragedy. It's very expensive, getting increasingly more expensive. Um, there's major underfunding and lack of strategic thought about preventive health care. And I'm quite sure as these submarines' expenses go up, there'll be more budget repair in the health system. I don't know what any of you are like... But I'm hopeless once it gets above about a billion. It's just a lot of money. One billion, ten billion, twenty billion, whatever. So I thought of this slide. It's a little bit out of date. It's 2019. But it's just trying to get you to think about how big a billion is. And how This is five billion. So 100 schools, lots of teachers, three new regional hospitals. But wait, there's more. Nurses, doctors, fire and rescue vehicles police officers. I mean, think of it in a bushfire. A lot of these would be mighty handy. And that's just five billion. That's just five billion with money to spare. ACOS has been saying for a while that one in eight Australians, we are a wealthy country. This is a disgrace. One in eight Australians lives in poverty. One in six children. Nearly two thirds of people on Newstart are living in poverty. And of those people, most of them are around $300 a week below. So this is a really severe problem for a lot of people. This is the OECD unemployment benefit scale. Guess where Australia sits? That little red dot down the end? We're sitting comfortably between Russia and Romania in the unemployment benefits we're granting. We used to be, believe it or not, this is an improvement. When it was Morrison, we were equal bottom with Greece. One thing that COVID did show us is that we can deal with poverty, that we really halved poverty rates by increasing government supports and payments. But of course, over 2021, those were rapidly withdrawn. Social housing is a hot topic at the moment. There's been 25 years of underinvestment and there's a shortfall of over 400,000 dwellings. Certainly direct funding for these new dwellings and efficient financing is the way to go. And propping up first home buyers just makes everything more expensive. The real estate agents love it, but that's about it. There are 17,000 kids under the age of 12 every night who are homeless and 120,000 adults. What we are doing at the moment is not enough. We're going backwards fast. Just to tread water, we need 15,000 dwellings every year. To make up the backlog, we need 36,000 dwellings a year. The current proposal that's just been deferred in federal parliament is for 30,000 dwellings over five years. Sorry, still going backwards. The cost for a program that actually would be likely to build 36,000 dollars a year would be five billion a year. So if we did for 15 years, that's 45 billion compared to 
the submarines, it's a bit of a bargain, really. So domestic violence, this is a disgrace. Again, we are leaving these women and children unsupported. It's one of the main reasons people seek homeless services and only 3% of people who seek long-term accommodation get it. And disgracefully, for an example, in Hobart in 2021-22, three quarters of the women that went to the Hobart refuge were turned away because there was no space. So going back to getting beaten up again or going to live in their cars or on the couch of somebody who might be able to take them in for a week or two. It's worth remembering that only 6% of the people who live rough are only 6% of the homeless. The homeless are pretty invisible. It's that you only see roughly 1 in 20 of the people who are actually homeless. For every one homeless person you see, there's another 20 living in their cars or couch surfing. The myth of legal aid. People who are not got much money often get really terrible social and economic challenges, but only 8% of the people who are below the poverty line can get legal aid. That's a disgrace. Next slide. The Law Council of Australia, not the most radical body, has come out saying hundreds of millions of dollars of cuts have pushed legal aid, and this is hundreds of millions of dollars of cuts by both sides, to the brink of collapse. Closing the gap, well, there's so much I could say about this, but basically this is complex. It needs long-term planning. Again, we need another 350 public servants working for 18 months, although this time we must have Indigenous people on that task force. There is nothing we should be doing for the Aboriginals without them. The saying is nothing about us without us because so much has been designed over the years with white fellas thinking what will be good for the others and they need to be involved. So please vote yes. AUKUS is so problematic on so many levels it's really hard to know where to start. It's an exorbitant cost. It's extremely risky. It sets a really dangerous proliferation precedent. It locks us into the next US war, and God help us, because nobody will win a war with China. It's likely to spark a regional arms race. It's going to massively increase our nuclear waste burden, and it's going to have major impacts, as the Sujana will tell you, on the Australian community. This is a deeply flawed choice. We're choosing a very high-risk, aggressive war machine in the distant future that's probably going to be obsolete over building a fairer society and a genuinely more secure Australia. Thank you. U.S. forces give a nod It's a setback for your country Bombs and trenches all in rows Bombs and threats still ask for more
Yeah, blast in the past. That was uh, Midnight Oil and US Forces. And, of course, we've just been covering uh, some of the uh, speakers at the No AUKUS uh, forum that was held at the Victorian Trades Hall Council. We're going to move on now and we're going to look at the uh, forest. We've got uh, Sue McKinnon from uh, King Lake Friends of the Forest on the line. G'day, Sue. How are you? Good, good, thanks. Yeah, um, it's it's great news that the Victorian Supreme Court has, um, has thrown out the uh, appeal that the Vic Forest put up against the decision against the, them for their flagrant uh, illegal acts in the forest, isn't it? Yes, we're very relieved. Last Tuesday, um, the decision came down. Um, the the the, uh, the decision in November was um, well, um, and it meant that Big Forest had, had to completely rearrange what they did in the forest um, and they had to um, try to abide by the laws. And they were finding that so hard to do that there'd been virtually no logging since um, November last year. But we were all worried about the appeal and um, uh, uh, although we, we we were sure we had our facts right in, in law, but uh, legal cases are quirky. Um, and uh, and the appeal judges, the three appeal judges, just handed down their decision. All of the uh, grounds for appeal by Bit Forest were thrown out. Yeah, and what we're talking about is an injunction protecting native forests and species across Victoria from all logging. Um, and it and it was protecting um, areas uh, right across Victoria, wasn't it? Well, our court case, King Lake Friends of the Forest court case, covered the Central Highlands, so that sort of the forest, the tall forest east of the Hume, but uh, not further west than say the Baubles, and not further north than than Eildon. Um, it's a it's a very large patch, but it's not all of the logging east of the Hume. Um, Environment East Gippsland ran a case at the same time as, as we did. In fact, they started the case before us. And uh, so their case covered all of East Gippsland. Um, so, no, not all of the forest is covered by um, by our court, our court uh, decision. Um, but it does set a precedent. That's what you're saying. Yes. Yeah, so all of the forest east of the hearing is logged in a certain way under a certain law and code and anything east of the Hume is now pretty well covered by the precedent that, that has been set in our two cases. It must uh, have... Logging has not been uh, banned so the court orders were that Big Forest must survey properly for yeah. greater gliders and yellow belly gliders and they must protect them where they find them. Once they do that they can continue to log. Oh, they chose oh. not to. They chose... they they. To them, surveying properly was so difficult that they didn't. They they have been try experimenting different ways to survey, and while doing that, um, they could not log because they were court, strict court orders saying you must survey properly. So until Vic Forest got their act together and worked out how to survey, um, they couldn't log. This is why. Um uh, taking the strategic uh, uh, option of using the law was, uh, I mean, that's a really big deal, isn't it, for a community groups to do this? 
Oh, it, it's hugely risky. It, it's incredibly time-consuming. Uh, you have to have a barrister and a lawyer that, that understands environment law and, and law that's in the forest. And, um, and, and there, there isn't a lot of lawyers that, that are able to do that, and we're fortunate to have Jonathan Corman um, and Kwabin Alabi and, and also barrister uh, Kylie Sh- uh, Western Scheiber to um, assist our case. And, um, and that doesn't come around all the time. No, no, you're quite That's right. Just, it is not available to everyone, and it is, as I say, expensive. But it's very expensive as well. Oh, yeah, yeah, it is very expensive yeah. to take anything yeah. to the uh, law courts. And mm. uh, this is one of the reasons for how the big end of town... Uh, Manages uh, dissent really, and also I think it's interesting that um, the anti-protest laws in relation to the environment in Victoria have focused on uh, 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 citizen scientists because obviously the issue of not following the rules in regards to surveying coops properly really uh, undid uh, Vic Forest. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It was um, citizen science allowed these cases to go ahead and allowed us to prove that they were logging where greater gliders were. Um, if we just believed Vic Forest, they would say, no, we've, we've had a look, um, there's nothing there, we're protecting X and Y, um, and they would continue on their merry way. Mind you, before we started our case, um, the Friends of Leadbeater Possum had their case in the federal court and that went over many years. And the federal court judges did hand down a decision that Vic Forest was logging illegally in Victoria. Um, we, in fact, used the same clause that uh, the federal court judge looked at. And uh, not surprisingly, uh, the state uh, judges found the same thing. But the federal court judge decision was the federal court decision was handed down in 2020 and the department of environment did nothing to then say okay we we really must regulate vic forest now because we've been told by a judge this is what the law means they should have been regulating vic forest before that and we would not have had so much you know disaster in our in our, in our wildlife but um they chose not to and they chose not to regulate Victoria, even after that decision was handed down. And that's why we had to take it to court. They weren't doing it. Well, that's fascinating, isn't it? Because it uh, shows uh, how um, different parts of government uh, uh, interact with each other and that uh, Vic Forest obviously has... Um, quite a lot of weight when it comes to uh, furthering its own cause. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm really concerned about, you know, I I was concerned about Vic Forest, of course, naturally, they're the the front line, but they were set out to, they were told to log. It's the government that should have been regulating its own laws that... um, that are you know squarely to, to blame for this, and, um, and and it's the same government and the same regulator, the Department of Environment, that is now uh, supposedly the regulator for Vic Forest, and Vic Forest 
does continue, will continue to log or to manage logging in the west of the state. That hasn't been banned. And I think some people, well, when I say banned, the, um, the Premier did hand down a decision um, a month ago saying logging, native forest logging will end in January 2024. But when he said that, he only meant the logging under the Vic Forest Allocation Order, which is all in the east of the state. Vic Forest manages logging of native forest in the west of the state under a different act, under different laws. And the Premier has confirmed in Parliament that that logging will continue at least for another six months while the licences um, are still valid. And we don't know what will happen after June 2024 in the west of the state. Mm, that's really interesting. There's always these caveats, aren't there? Like nothing yep. ever, you, you know, they say something and then that, then it it's not really, a, you think it's an absolute, but it's not an absolute. And the other one that's, uh, that I'm aware of is this business about um, uh, cutting down um, forests in the name of fire management. Yep, yep. <laughs> Yeah, so it's it's there will continue to be logging under different names, and this is why this is my concern with the Department of Environment. If they've they've shown their colours by not regulating Vic Forest, and we have proven that, and we've shown their colours. Um, so that's the same department that's now been put in charge of regulating fire management. They, in fact, do the fire management work um, and regulating big forest into the future with their, the licences they issue to people who will log in the in the West. Uh, Department of Environment will supposedly regulate um, all this, this other work that they're demanding, like um, picking up fallen trees from storms. Uh, and, yes. Uh, you know, I call it disaster logging. Um, it, it's going in and, and looting after a disaster. And these forests need um, the, the, the trees on the ground to cover the ground and protect the ground. The, the animals such as fasca gales, endangered animals, uh, use those logs to, to collect um, insects from. And, um, you know, it, it, they, they, it reduces the wind and the dryness in the forest. And yet... The Department of Environment is sending Vic Forest in to take away those logs and sell them for pulp, for yeah, paper, yeah, yeah. And, and leave all the tops of those trees on the ground, which are, you know, if anyone is concerned about fire, it is the tops of the trees, the small branches, the leaves that are left in the forest that would be a concern in fire. Yeah, yeah, uh, uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, what you're really pointing out is that all this money that's been wasted on big forests could actually be used to uh, uh, maintain forests, uh, you know, cultivate forests effectively. Well, we've, we've research after research has shown that if we want to manage the forest to reduce the fire risk, we need the forest to be as old as possible. Mm. So we need to manage the forest to age it and the, the, the way to age it is to ensure that fire doesn't go in there and kill the forest and take it back to zero age. So the, uh, the, the best thing to do is to stop 
the press fires, immediately they happen. And and we have the technology to do that. Um, it's just that the standard way of firefighting in Victoria is, is uh, antiquated and old and um, they don't seem to have any urgency about fires that start way, way, way into the forest, away from people. They they do not put those out quickly enough and um, and then they... And then they, they bring that forest back to a young age. And, oh, so what you're really yeah. saying is that what strikes me is that it sounds like there needs to be a massive education campaign to raise uh, awareness uh, and overturn stereotypic uh, sort of colonial notions about how we relate to the environment. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. It's um, the the way, well, I think many people have said that in the past. And and why would the forest be any different, you know? Yeah, Um, yeah, that's right. Uh, Before, uh, because we have been chatting for a while, and this is actually a... uh, an issue that uh, always keeps giving. Um, This uh, appeal went to the Supreme Court, the Victorian Supreme Court, and there is actually a a higher court. Uh, You're not expecting them to take it to another appeal, are you? Well, Vic Forrest seem to have um, pockets that don't have any bottom, um, and... uh, uh, I would think that they could do that. They could take it to the High Court. Uh, I don't know if there's any grounds. Oh, it's up to the High Court whether to accept that appeal or not. Right, yeah, that's right. And um, they may not. Yeah. Thanks for your work and thank you for talking to us. Thanks. Thanks, Annie. Yeah, you're a great person. You should get an AO, whatever it is. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there's, a, there's a lot of us that, that have earned quite a bit, I think, over the last... <laughs> 20, 30, 40 years. <laughs> yeah, well, you're super people if you ask me. Thank you very much. Bye-bye, Thanks. Sue. Thanks. This year's Eco-Socialism Conference, A World Beyond Capitalism, is on the first weekend of July. Activists from around the world will gather at Victorian Trades Hall to discuss the intersection between the ecological, economic and political crises of our time. The event is open to everyone, so come along and be part of the struggle for a better world. Find out more information on panels and speakers and get your tickets today at ecosocialism.org.au. A 3CR supporter. A weak solidarity bricky team listener when big economic guru Jim Chalmers Capital announced excitedly, proudly, the budget surplus will be even larger, even more surplus than predicted, allowing the government to provide support for those doing it tough. I know people are doing it tough, Jim told us. And? And I know people are doing it tough. Um, So what are you doing about it, Jim? I'm talking about it. Because I know people are doing it tough. Yes, yes, but what will you do about it? I told you, I know people are doing it tough. Uh, So you'll use the surplus to help the people you know, uh, and I'm pretty sure you do know, people are doing it tough. You're right, I do know, but no, if we spend the surplus, we won't have a surplus. Uh, but, But isn't the surplus money government raises to provide services which is not spending on services? No, no, let me explain. The surplus is money raised so we can have a surplus. Uh, So what will you do with the surplus? It will allow us to help those doing it tough. And I know people are doing it tough. What, by by not spending it? 
Exactly. Uh, thanks, Jim. Pleasure. And for the third week in a row, the Socialists have picked up the Courage Under Fire Award of the Week, this time the State Socialists, who with firm resolve announced a tax on private schools, creating apoplexy in the luxurious grounds of the private colleges. Disaster will have to raise our fees, the poor, poor parents, and thus the firm resolve dissipated like fairy floss. Well, done, State Socialists. Your Courage Under Fire Award is on its way. The federal government, with the same firm resolve, has announced it will ban gambling ads. Apoplexy this time in that industry and the filthy rich sports and media who'll lose the ads. The government now agreeing to meet those affected to discuss the policy. Somehow I see yet another Courage Under Fire award in the offing. On which, following yet another Her Most Gracious Majesty's Royal Commission exposing massive crime and corruption in the private mint casino industry, in this case the Star Private Mint in Sydney, Star Private M facing a huge tax increase. The new New South Wales Socialist Government agreed this week to delay the tax, presumably to allow poor Star Private M to make just a little more of a killing so it can afford to pay the tax if and when it ever kicks in. Not that these people have more influence than you or me, listener. And in the, my word, it's hard to believe, isn't it, department, just as government assistance for childcare is about to kick in, what do you know? The heavily subsidised caring childcare industry jacks up its fees. My word, it's hard to believe, isn't it? Oh, and as the Reserve Losses Bank insists wages must fall and unemployment must rise, so we can all be better off, what a party pooper the OECD, which reported bumper profits and not slow wages growth, had spurred inflation. But we can be sure the diverse thinkers at the Reserve Losses Bank will treat that with the disdain it deserves. Warmists, as Lord Rupert of Wapping's usual suspect columnist bolt through the head calls idiot economic vandals who still believe there might just be such a thing as climate change, warmists up in Queensland have come up with a great idea for future generations. A coral museum. A living coral biobank, they're calling it. Preserving the sundry corals on the Great Barrier Reef so future generations can see what used to be in the sea. Given former chief scientist at the Troubluwazi Institute of Marine Science, Charlie Beron, says there's not a chance in heaven of saving the Barrier Reef. Imagine the disdain with which Lord Rupert and his lackey bolt through the head must regard him. Once upon a time, dear little children, all this lived and thrived in the sea, just out there. But for the common good, the great fossil giants and the government concerned about the great fossil giants, the common good, knew there must be there were more important things. Isn't it good that future generations can see what used to be, if the future gets that far? And imagine what sceptics would make of the warmest at the climate action tracker who reckon if the rest of the world followed Trublowazi's current commitments and policies, global warming would exceed three degrees. Trublowazi not doing near enough? What nonsense! Don't they care about the hard-working fossil boardrooms, shareholders, profits? 
and it's not like we're doing nothing. Goodness, no. We, we've made a commitment to, to do something, and it doesn't matter anyway. The Lord Rupert usual suspect columnist assures us more and more carbon dioxide is good for us, good for the planet, promotes growth, life, all the while denying it's happening anyway. The problem was summed up by one of the caring fossils, BP for Big Polluter, which bemoaned the fact the transition from fossils was thwarted by Trublowazi's policies, urging more priority and funding for project-enabling infrastructure, its Trublowazi supremo Frederick Baldur's Brass advised. We need overarching policy frameworks to de-risk investment. de-risk Frederick. Yes, ensure we don't use any of and risk any of our money. And so you're happy to invest if the government pays for it. Exactly. We we care. And caring energy giant AG Hell for customers picked up the perfect timing of the week award when same day it announced record profits and informed customers their bills will rise by as much as fifty one percent. Good news guaranteeing even more record profits next year and quite possibly it will make a small donation to the Coral Museum to prove its commitment to the environment. The most disgraceful event of the week occurred in Big Polluter's home country, our our mother country, when these long-haired commie greenie wooden worker and iron lots from some warmest group called No More Oil invaded the hallow turf of Lords prompting the Lord Supremo Guy Lavender, Lavender Blue, but most definitely not Lavender Green, I suspect, who condemned the action in the strongest possible terms, complete disregard for people who pay to attend events. And how shocking that those who don't pay, who watch or don't watch the game while enjoying the lavish corporate hospitality, charming, respectable, great, caring business class men have to see such anti-social behaviour, many of whom would doubtless be oil and fossil executives, making the protest even more disgraceful. For all the oil and fossil behemoths tell us how committed they are to addressing climate change, if there is such a thing, and realise we need oil and fossils to transform from oil and fossils. Shame, no more oil, shame. And I stressed men, because in a telly shot of the corporate room where the caring business class elite gather, I could not see one woman. Sometimes we have to admit we were wrong, wrong, wrong. Well, I have to admit, after Simple Simon went to the great parliament in the sky, I discovered I had misjudged him all these years, that he was a giant of the Labour movement, the media screamed when I didn't think he was all that tall. And I must have misheard in that documentary about the protracted Queensland electricity workers' strike, CQEB, the then ACTU Supremo Simon, caught on the sidelines pushing a deal to sell the workers down the drain. But his legacy best expressed by our old mate, Industry Profits Council Supremo Innes, will cost the workers, who praised Simple Simon for his support for and understanding of the caring business class. Innes will cost the workers. What greater tribute could we get for a giant of the labour movement? Meanwhile, a giant of the academic movement, caring business class party supremo and would-be big supremo, Constable Peter Duffer, called for the voice referendum to be cancelled because 
I don't want it to, you know, like, lose. Well, Pete, not sure you've thought of this, but there's one way you can make sure it doesn't lose. Despite his sincere concern, Pete called on voters in the upcoming Fadden by-election to show the government they opposed the voice, expose big supremo Anthony Albingusi for his refusal to provide details, 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 presumably the details he has attempted to get through Pete's head time and again, showing either Pete is so dumb he doesn't get it, or dare we suggest... His plan is to obfuscate and confuse something very simple. Not that we're ruling out the dumb bit. Over in Western Trublawazi, caring Trublawazi's doing their bit to help us all, like Kerry Stacks of Wealth, the filthiest rich of the filthy rich, Gina Wrongheart, Twitty Fell Forests, are concerned their desire to help us, help us might be thwarted by new Aboriginal heritage laws, terra nullius non-people thwarting progress particularly on the vast cattle stations they all own. What right do Terranilius non-people have to think they could have a say in what happens on these great Trublawazi's vast lands? Kerry concerned his plans for a dam on one of his Kimberley properties, note one of, could be opposed by local Terranilius non-people when all he wants to do is clear about 200 hectares of bush so he can draw on groundwater to provide feed for his cattle. It's his land. The laws passed just after Rio Tato, the planet, did its bit to wipe out thousands of years of Terranilius non-people history at Duke and Gorge, but on hold ever since, come into effect today. Thus, panic for poor Kerry and poor Gina and poor Twitty et al. Over threats from people who have no respect for other people's property, for vast, vast expanses of other people's property. Oh, how could I forget? So, sorry, Lister, the week that was, and, and I haven't mentioned the big news of the week. Tickets for a concert. And well-named, because to get a ticket, you had to be swift. Former New South Wales Supremo Gladys Berish Corruption says she has done nothing wrong, always acting in the public interest. And yeah, she's spot on, because the public has developed an interest in her interest in the public of the Wagga Wagga electorate. Finally, insightful article this week by a bloke called Nick Hossack, real name, former advisor to big supremo little Johnny Howard, these days, quote, public policy advisor, attacking those, attacking big four corporate PWC for pricks with confidentiality, pointing out the private sector and the public sector are different, and pricks with was just doing what the private sector does. Just like the snake asks, why did you bite me? Which answered, because I'm a snake. Great insight, Nick, and thanks for assuring us the economy is in safe hands. Good morning. Don't start me talking. Hi, this is Anna Piper Scott. Please support 3CR's Radiothon. Stay tuned, stay radical. And you're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast. And we're joined by Connor Flynn from Save the Preston Market. G'day, Connor. How are you? Good, Annie. Pleasure to be with you. It feels unusual for the first time we're speaking in the studio, having had many conversations with you on picket lines and at protests over the last decade. Yes, that's exactly right. Um, And it's uh, it's great having a a live guest. I know, not dead, 
but uh, as uh, Kevin would say to me uh, next week, but um, actually having someone in here, which is really nice because it's early and it's nippy. Yes, it's and it's so important and vital to support community radio, so doing what we can. Yeah, that's right. So uh, it's been a long battle to uh, raise awareness about the saving of the uh, Preston Market. Now, Preston Market's absolutely important because of its touchstone community uh, – you know, why is it important? Tell, Tell everyone why it's important first. We'll start off. I mean, it's the beating heart of the northern suburbs. It's more than just a market. It's a vital community hub. Um, which brings people together from all walks of life. It's a it's a communal hub, it's a trading hub, and it's bloody important to not only just the northern suburbs but the entire city itself. You've got people who come from all across Melbourne to enjoy the sight and sounds of the market, whether it's people watching, whether it's having a burek or uh, going to the deli or greengrocers or, you know, yeah, just generally speaking. And the plan by the uh, – and interestingly enough, this public asset, this community asset is on privately owned land. Well, that's right. It's always been privately owned when it was first set up by our Polish migrants in 1970. And the current owners, Salta Medic, they've owned the site since 2004. But it's important to realise that the Preston market has long been seen as a site of development, not only by – property developers like Salter, but also the state government. Um, And so they've been biding their time for the last 20 years, waiting to strike to develop that site to maximise profits. Now, they've tried multiple times over the years, but they've been forced back by community opposition. Remember when Richard Wynne was the planning minister, the state government at the time, were trying to develop the site then, but they were pushed back. And again, there was a bit of a lull. um, And initially, the state government and Salter saw eye to eye on what to do with the site, but again, there's been blowback from the community, which has led to this current situation, um, which is very volatile. So tell us about the uh, the last public meeting, the big public meeting that was held at the council uh, building. So that was held in late May. Now, it's important to realise how far the campaign has come since 2021, which is the latest iteration. So there was a, a consultative Um, committee hearing where members of the community and property developers um, presented their cases and that occurred towards the end of 2022. Um, There was a state election of course where the Labor Party almost lost the safe seat of Preston due to the issue of the Preston market um, which put enormous political pressure on the Labor Party and the new member Nathan Lambert, himself a former Clear Bachelor of the Year contestant. And there has been a number of actions. So there was actions outside of his office, actions outside the planning minister. Oh, and, and it also, should be remembered, he was helicoptered in. That's that's true. That's very true. And so all these actions have led to the state government actually announcing in early April that they would um, want to protect the market um, and they were going to introduce a heritage overlay. So in that context, we held a meeting in May, um, where the community came together to outline their concerns, to hand over petitions to the local MP, where more than 30,000 people um, supported a campaign's pledge to for the state government to publicly acquire that site. And since then, the state government um, have kind of been biding their time. They say that they'll save the Preston market, 
um, the planning minister said she'll introduce legislation to introduce a heritage overlay. Which sort of, I have to say, sounds a little bit like my previous interview. Uh, we won't cut down any old growth forest in Victoria. That sounds like an absolute, doesn't it? Correct. <laughs> so that's so the government, you know, they, they say they're going to save the market, but they've done nothing since. And now you've had Salter come out. They're not very happy because this will reduce their profit margins. Um, the state government says if any development is to occur on site, um, they're not going to give Salter 2,200 luxury apartments that no one can afford. They say, okay, you can still build around the market, but we'll allow you to build 1,400 apartments. So that's where Sam Tarasio Sr. and Sam Tarasio Jr. have come out and said, um, as a result of the government's announcement, we um, are going to close down the market in January 2024. Wow, they're just going to give everybody notice and tell them to piss off. Pretty much. So you've seen it's credited. A- this is their preemptive attack. Mm. Or as a previous part of the show talked about, which is... Forward defence, which is really attack. Oh, I mean, when you're capital, you throw your weight around, and that's exactly what Salter are doing. They're renowned for doing this um, if developments don't go the way, and they're trying again with Preston Market. So at our meeting, we used that to to express our opposition to, to Salter, but also to the put pressure on the state government that the only way to save the Preston Market and the only way to ensure this valuable asset is maintained and that traders are given security is to publicly acquire it. Yeah, right. Okay. uh, Just let's go back a few steps. You said that they had this heritage overlay. What did that actually mean? Look, I'm not a, I'm not a planner despite starting an urban planning degree. Um, But there's a lot of weasel words like legislation. It's all entirely up for grabs. Um, it can mean anything to anyone. Um, but they could put up a sign saying mm. that this used to be the site of the Preston Market. <laughs> Hopefully not. <laughs> no, that's exactly right. So um, they've done this preemptive strike, and you said that it's actually now reached the Financial Times. That's correct. So they've uh, the, they've, the beca- ma- they're being sooks. The mouthpiece of the ruling class in this country, the Financial Review, published an article just a few days ago where a sole trader at Preston Market um, wrote a very explicit letter to Salter Medic, um, who accused um, Sam Tarasio Sr., who, for our listeners out there, Sam Tarasio Sr. has so much wealth that he's among the top 3,000 richest people on the planet. Wow. If he really wanted to, he could afford a trip on Ocean Gate. This is how much money this man has, and this is how much power he has. It's astronomical. So this sole trader said that you're throwing your weight around like wealthy bullies intimidating the working class storeholders. Maybe you and your father should reflect on the hardship his Italian parents and your grandparents would have endured in trying to make a go in a new country and be more empathetic to the plight of storeholders at the market, which greatly upset Sam, he took to LinkedIn um, and said, I'm really hurt by this. I'm really hurt that anyone could say this about me and my business. Really? Correct. Yeah, yeah, right. Uh, um, It's a thorn in their side, quite clearly. Well, it is. I mean, when you're impacting with their profits, of course, it's going to 
course it's going to hurt. Mm. Well, uh, just remind listeners, you're on Solidarity Breakfast and it's 3CR, your community radio station, and we're talking to Connor Flynn about Save the Preston Market. So what happens next, Connor? What's going on? Well, the the campaign's in holding position. We're still waiting on the state government to um, come through with their... um, their announcement made in early April. Um, just last week, there was a protest outside of Sonia Kilkenny's office where she caught wind and didn't allow community members to come in. Um, the campaign does have a who, number who of... Who is she? Sonia Kilkenny is the planning minister. Um, Sorry, well, I didn't know. Who does? I mean, who does? <laughs> Yeah, in fact, they should employ you guys to uh, because they rose their profile. Absolutely. So we're just in holding position, and we, I think, for all parties involved, not only the community but for traders, um, we want an outcome very, very soon. So we're planning an action called Hands Around Our Market for August 12, where people can come and do a physical display of solidarity of wrapping our hands around Preston Market to show how much we love and support our vital community asset. What's the time? Um, It starts at 11 o'clock just outside of Preston Market. But I think that, you know, the right to urban space is really important and people understand it. And when we do organise, we can win. And there's countless examples, you know, I said this when I was last on FreeCR, that there's examples in this city in a, the last decade or so of when, say, public housing estates, when the Bali government threatened to sell off the open space, residents organised... Oh, it's going over in Yarra, Yarraville where they want to put a, a, a basketball stadium on the uh, the longest uh, unfettered um, uh, free land for public space. And I believe the CFMEU has said they're not going to work no. on that side as well, so... You got that recent example, the East West Tunnel campaign of which I was involved in, of when people physically stopped test drilling at various sites around Fitzroy, which in turn put enormous pressure on the then Napfine Liberal government, also the Labor Party, to completely abandon that project. The campaign to save Footscray Park, where Melbourne Melbourne Victory, I should say. Um, a, a private to, a private concern. Absolutely. And I think that... Just stealing public land. And at that meeting as well, there was a huge appetite that should it come to that, that people are willing to engage in community, in, in community pickets and direct action to actually fight to save the Preston market. It harks back to what the BLF were doing under the leadership of Jack Mundy in New South Wales and Norman Gallagher in Victoria back in the 1970s of where all of these vitally important sites in our community... Um, think of Queen Victoria Market, think of Carlton Bars, think of The Rocks, etc. The only reason why they are remaining in place today is because of of, peop- of when ordinary people stood up and said, no, we're not going to allow big business to dictate how and which we live in our communities. Well, it's fascinating, isn't it? Because these people are so wealthy, they can live anywhere. Absolutely. Um, but I don't think this. That's the point. That if uh, Sam Tarasio um, and their family, I mean, I don't think they'd want to live in a shipbox apartment that they're eventually going to build if they just, if they built it at the Preston Market site. Well, 14, I was going to say, well, I don't know if they are going to be shipboxes, but um, I'm just, uh, we'll ju- jump in there. But 1,400 
a flats. I, I've stopped calling them mm. apartments. They're flats. <laughs> um, that's an awful lot on that space. Well, I mean, you kind of – Preston Market's a big site and there's a lot of car parks. And look, council have put forward a alternate proposal, as has the campaign, to save the Preston Market as well, while we're retaining the market site of where – Development can occur as long as you keep the market exactly where it is, give it, upgrade it, repair it, whatever needs to be done. But you can have appropriate development, emphasis on public public housing, which is exactly what we need in this country. Um, do, do you think it's a bit, little bit like um, you can't tell me what to do? I mean, he is giving off those vibes. I mean... If you have the time, you can read his entire LinkedIn post, um, if you're into LinkedIn, um, where he's pretty much saying, yeah, like, I'm a rich man, I should be able to do exactly what I want, but the community and the government aren't allowing me to do so. Yeah, sookie, sookie, sookie. Uh, anyway, so we should hands around Preston Market, August the 12th, 8am. That is correct. And if you want to get involved with the campaign, we have a Facebook post, we have an Instagram account and a Twitter page as well. So please feel free to um, email us or reach out to us on any of those platforms. Thank you very much for coming in and updating us on this important issue, this very important issue. I mean, the right to urban space is bloody important and we have every right to have a say over how we run our communities. That's right. This is Connor Flynn from Save Preston Market. You're on 3CR with Annie. Hi, I'm Robbie Thorpe. Beyond the Bars is 3CR's annual prison radio series where we share the mic with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander men and women in Victoria's prisons. Uh, We are such a huge representation in prison all over Australia statistically it has to stop and it's going to not going to stop while you're building more beds in a prison it's a band-aid what about beds outside tune in to 3cr during nadoc week at 11 a.m each day from monday the 3rd to friday the 7th of july we'll take you inside six victorian prisons dame phyllis frost center barwon prison fulham correctional center loddon prison marguerite correctional center and port phillip prison to hear stories, songs, opinions and poems from the men and women inside while connecting with culture and community. The shows will be live on 3CR 855 on your AM dial, 3CR digital and streaming via our website or the Community Radio Plus app. For more information, head to our website 3cr.org.au backslash beyondthebars. This year's Eco-Socialism Conference, A World Beyond Capitalism, is on the first weekend of July. Activists from around the world will gather at Victorian Trades Hall to discuss the intersection between the ecological, economic and political crises of our time. The event is open to everyone, so come along and be part of the struggle for a better world. Find out more information on panels and speakers and get your tickets today at ecosocialism.org.au. A 3CR supporter. Hi, I'm Monero from Fitzroy Primary School, and you're listening to Community Radio on 3CR. Yeah, and we've come to the end of the show uh, today on Solidarity Breakfast. We 
went to the uh, AUKUS, uh, anti-AUKUS uh, forum that they had at uh, Victoria Trades Hall on the 23rd of August. Uh, Peter Garrett and Margie uh, Beavis were the two that we listened to. Um, I'm going to feature uh, Arthur Roris, who's from the uh, South Coast um, Trades and Labor Council, as well as perhaps uh, Tony Mabramatis on Stick Together. Um, Tony Mabramatis is uh, the Victorian Secretary of the uh, A. Uh, MWU. Now, um, he was fascinating because he talked about there being no jobs and that he'd actually, their union had actually put up a uh, a, um, uh, anti-AUKUS motion at the uh, recent Victorian State um, Conference, which, uh, and he was, I think he was a bit uh, miffed that it didn't get up, particularly because there are no jobs. He was quite forceful. There are no local jobs for Australians in AUKUS. So nobody should be going around the place thinking that it's a great idea because of jobs. Anyway, so he was a bit naffed by all that. So uh, very interesting. And of course, Arthur Aurorus was much more systematic in his uh, approach. He talked about uh, Port Kembla and the plan that's been going on for over a decade to create 8,000 sustainable jobs in the district, which will just be trounced by any um, concept of uh, using Port Kembla as a parking space for nuclear subs. So there you go. Anyway, so listen up to stick together for uh, more of the information from the Antiochus crew. Um, Hopefully you are one of them. Uh, We... Uh, followed that with a chat with Sue McKinnon from King Lake Friends of the Forest and she was giving us a understanding of what's going on in that sphere and we've just finished up with Connor Flynn from uh, Save the Preston Market. Uh, hands around Preston Market, August the 12th, 11am, to show solidarity for uh, urban spaces that we can actually live in. Coming up next is Asia Pacific Currents, and I'm going to go out with this uh, song by Lucky Doob, Crime and Corruption.
Another police station was attacked this morning, which makes it free this week by men who dance around the law with their tongues sticking out, sticking out. Eco-Socialism Conference, A World Beyond Capitalism, is on the first weekend of July. Activists from around the world will gather at Victorian Trades Hall to discuss the intersection between the ecological, economic and political crises of our time. The event is open to everyone, so come along and be part of the struggle for a better world. Find out more information on panels and speakers and get your tickets today at ecosocialism.org.au. A 3CR supporter. Did you enjoy listening to that podcast? 3CR is a community radio station, and you, the listener, are a part of that community. Right now, it's our Radiothon. We need you to pitch in with a few dollars to keep the station going. We can't do it without you. It's easy. Head to 3cr.org.au forward slash donate. Your donations really matter.